Well, good morning, church. And let me reiterate again a happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. I was awoken this morning by uh, my eight year old daughter, Annalise, and my five year old son, John David, with breakfast in bed. And Annalise came in and she said, Daddy, happy Father's Day to the second best father ever. With a confused look on my face, I said, Annalise, the second best father ever? And she said, well, Daddy, you don't think you're better than God, do you? I said, no, no, Annalise, I don't think I'm better than God, the theology of an eight-year-old. Well, church, welcome today. And if you've been with us the last few months, you know that we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And today, we're going to continue that journey. Today, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And what I'd like to do today, church, is I'm going to read through these verses and then we'll pray and ask God for his mercy today. And then we'll come back and unpack what God is saying to us through these verses. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. It reads, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility." By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we have, in, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the home, whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. And we come to you today, God, because we're going to beg for you to speak. Father, it's only your words that can change hearts. It's only your words, God, that have ever brought life to death. Father God, the words of a man cannot change a heart. They cannot change a man's eternity, but yours can, Father. Your words, Father, can draw us nearer to you. And so we pray and we plead and we beg, God, that you would speak today. Guard my lips. Put angels around my lips to guard my lips from any words of my own coming out. Remove me, Father, and please speak to us all today. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, today in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul is going to talk to us a lot about divisions, hostilities, and rivalries. You know, growing up as a young boy in Pampa, Texas, in the panhandle of Texas, I knew early on in my life what it meant to have a hostile rival. You see, growing up in my house, you were brought up and taught, and might, some might say rightly indoctrinated, to cheer for one college football team. My, at my house, I didn't even know until I was eight or nine years old that there was another college in the state of Texas. I thought there was just one. On Saturdays, 
my family would go to the games and I'd watch it on TV. That college football team was the University of Texas Longhorns. <laughs> when I was preparing this message, it's at this point that I pictured pitchforks and torches carrying me outside the room. But, but I, I just, I ask you, you've got to give me a little brotherly love and sympathy. I mean, for crying out loud, we have not won a college conference championship since George W. Bush was in the White House. A little sympathy, a little love, I think. And while my parents would go to the games every Saturday, there, there was one specific team that we had a hostile rivalry against. And we played this team on the second Saturday of every October. And obviously, as you're probably figuring out, that team was the University of Oklahoma Sooners. Put those pitchforks away. We're not done yet. We were not allowed in my house to wear any crimson and cream. We weren't allowed to use words that had O and U together in them. In fact, in fact, there were two things growing up that I said I would never, ever, ever do. One was live in Oklahoma, and two was drive a minivan. Today, after church, my family and I will be going to lunch in our Kia minivan. God certainly does have a sense of humor. Well, beloved, there, there are much, much deeper and hostile rivalries than something as silly as college football games going on in the world today. All you have to do is turn on the television or, or look on the internet, and you'll find neighboring countries warring with each other, committing genocide against each other's civilians. Even in our own nation, sadly, we still battle with divisions between racial ethnicities. And even more sadly, church, we don't have to go outside the local church body to look in and see divisions and hostilities and rivalries happening within the church from things such as secondary theological differences, divisions in churches over the preference of style of music. Well, the Apostle Paul, he had many of these same types of rivalries. These divisions were nothing new to him in the first century. He had the same types of divisions with socioeconomic classes, the wealthy versus the poor. He, he had a very unique rivalry that we don't deal with here, but slave owners and slaves, when they would come and give their life to Jesus Christ, and now they're in the same church body together, and Paul's trying to tell them there's no more hierarchy. But there was one division there was one separation in the first church that was deeper and stronger and more complex than any other division that Paul dealt with. And that was the division between Jew and Gentile. You see, a, a Gentile, by definition, is simply anyone that's non-Jewish. And this letter was written predominantly to a Gentile audience, much like the congregation we have in our church today. This intensity between the Jew and the Gentile well, it was very intense. It was complex. In fact, rabbinical writings tell us that in the first century, if a Jewish man were to render aid to a Gentile woman in his moment of childbirth, he would be ostracized and put in prison because the Jewish, Jews would see that as bringing another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy were to marry a Gentile woman, the family of that Jewish boy would consider him dead. In fact, they would hold a mock funeral to mourn the loss of their loved ones. And this still takes place today in Orthodox Judaism. If, if that Jewish traveler was trying to go from southern Israel up to northern Israel, they would come to a swath of land called Samaria. And Samaria was predominantly a Gentile-filled land. 
Instead of simply crossing through Samaria to get to northern Israel, they would walk out to the Jordan River, get into the Jordan River, walk upstream until they were past Samaria, and then get back on land where they could put their feet on Jewish soil, therefore not getting Gentile dust on their feet. And make no mistake about it, the Gentile hate for the Jew was just as strong. If that same traveler did try to get through Samaria, the chances of him coming out alive on the other side were between slim and none. In today's message, what Paul is going to show us is how Christ breaks down the wall of hostility between these two enemies and they become one. So again, church, if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul is going to show us three big ideas in this text. The first thing he's going to show us is our condition as Gentile believers, as Gentiles, apart from Christ. And that'll be in verses 11 through 12. The second thing he'll show us is our condition because of Christ, which we'll find in verses 13 through 18. And then finally, our third big idea Paul's going to show us is our condition after Christ, which he's going to show us in verses 19 through 22. So starting in verse 11, Paul writes, therefore. Now, now right off the bat, we've got a little work we need to do with that word. Whenever you're reading any kind of writing and you see the word therefore, you need to find out what is the therefore, therefore. The therefore always relates what is about to follow to the previous topic of discussion. So the therefore in verse 11 is pointing back to what Paul has just said in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And in verses 1 through 10, Paul has just got through explaining the meaning and spiritual mechanics of salvation in relation to the individual. He's just told us in verses 1 through 10 that that all are dead in their trespasses, that everyone is born totally depraved into this world, and that none is saved but by God in Christ through faith. And even that faith is a gift from God, so that no man can boast. This salvation, Paul tells us, of the individual also has social and corporate implications. Because we are one now in Christ, Paul's going to tell us in these verses what it means in our horizontal relationship with each other in the church. So he says, therefore, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Even the name that the Jews called the Gentiles, the uncircumcisions, reinforced that barrier between them. To call somebody the uncircumcision would be like today using a racial slur against somebody of a different ethnicity. The Jews thought that to be uncircumcised, well, that meant they were separated from the Lord as circumcision was an external sign of being in covenant with God. It was an outward symbol of Jewish privilege. This Jewish privilege, however, church, it was void of any internal spiritual reality. The nation of Israel, that was God's chosen nation. You can read throughout the Old Testament and see that God set his special love and his grace and his mercy and his blessings on the nation of Israel. And their purpose, church, was to be a vessel or a channel of God's love and grace outward to these unbelieving pagan nations. But instead of acting like a channel or a vessel of God's grace... The nation of Israel became more like a bucket, and they withheld God's grace, and they held it in, and they got swollen and puffed up and wicked and evil, and they began to look down on the other nations as they were better than them. 
Paul really drives this point home that circumcision is external in the end of verse 11 when he says circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul is driving home the point that circumcision belonged to the older order of Judaism with all its external features. Today, when a person surrenders their life to Jesus Christ and confesses they're a sinner and confesses that he is the only way for salvation, a circumcision still takes place, but, but it's a circumcision of the heart. It's an internal and eternal circumcision of the heart whereby the Holy Spirit enters into a person's life and circumcises that dead, old, sinful heart. And a new heart comes forth, a new life comes forth that leads that person into a belief and faith in Jesus Christ. Instead of an external circumcision being done in the flesh by human hands, the child of God has an internal and eternal circumcision done by godly eternal hands. In verse 12, church, Paul is going to go on continuing, telling us our first big idea about who we are apart from Christ by listing four characteristics of who we are as Gentiles before Christ. He says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You see, Christ was in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, Joseph, Jesus. He was a Jew. He was in the Jewish lineage. And as Gentiles, we had no part in that lineage. We were separated from the lineage of Christ Jesus. The second thing that Paul tells us of who we are apart from Christ is that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So God had these covenants and these unconditional promises that he made with the nation of Israel. As Gentiles, we were not part of those covenants. We were on the outside looking in. These special promises that he made were specifically for the nation of Israel at that time. Now, God through Abraham did tell Abraham back in Genesis that he would bless all the nations. And what he meant by that we know now is that Gentiles are included in that. But the Gentiles didn't know that. They were excluded from these promises that God was making. The third thing he tells us is that we're without hope. Well, obviously, we're separated from Christ. We're strangers to the covenants and promises of God. We had no hope. And church, if that wasn't bad enough, the fourth thing he tells us in verse 12 is that we're without God in this world. Now, sure, the Gentiles, they had little G-gods made out of copper and tin and gold and wood that could easily tarnish or, or burn up. And today, unbelievers have gods. They have little gods, but instead we call them comfort and job promotion a new car, and bigger raises. But they're without the capital G God. Without the capital G triune God, the only God who can bring salvation, the only God that can rescue a person from their wickedness. Alienated, separated from Christ, strangers to the promises, no hope, and without God. Can you think of anything more desperate and dark than those conditions? And that's who Paul tells us we were apart from Christ. And now in verse 13, Paul's going to tell us our second big idea of who we are because of Christ, our condition because of Christ. And church, this next verse, these next seven or eight words should be some of the greatest news a Gentile could ever hear. These words coming up should be words that come in resounding with a choir of angels and trumpets as Paul tells us, but now... But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Knowing what our condition was apart from Christ, to know who we are now because of Christ, 
Church, that should be more exciting to us than any last second field goal or three point buzzer beating shot. That that should be more good news to us than a job promotion, a pay raise. These are the best words a Gentile could hear, that we've been brought near to Christ now. But how? How, Paul? How how have I been brought near to Christ? Is is it through my good works? Is, Is it because I come to church every Sunday and I tithe? No. No, it's not what Paul says. Paul said it's you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The same blood that flowed through Emmanuel's veins is the same blood that covers you for eternity. It's not through our good works. The only thing we bring to our salvation experience is our sin and God brings his son. Paul continues on in verse 14 and says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man and place the two, so making peace. Our sin has created a dividing wall of hostility between us and God. God doesn't wink at sin. If you're apart from Christ, you sit in the hands of an angry God who is going to have wrath on sin. And what this is saying here is that Jesus Christ in his flesh on that cross broke down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. When he was on that cross and his flesh was broken down and he took the wrath of God upon himself, the judge took the judgment. That dividing wall between all those who find themselves in Jesus Christ has been extinguished and demolished forever. And on a lesser note, in the the temple courts of Paul's day, there was an inner court and an outer court. And in the outer court, anyone could go, Jew and Gentile alike. But in the inner court, that was reserved just for Jews. In fact, there was literally a sign that divided the inner court from the outer court that said no Gentiles allowed. What Paul's telling us here is that through Jesus Christ on the cross in his flesh, that dividing wall between us and God has been demolished, and that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been demolished. There, there, there's no more, no more division between Jen and Jew, Jew, uh, Jew and Gentile. See what he's saying there, church? Is There's no more two men. There's one man in Christ Jesus. Christ did not come to make a better version of your older self. He came to make a completely new man, one in Christ. There's no more Jewish Christian. There's no more Gentile Christian. There is no black Christian, white Christian, young Christian, old Christian. There's just Christian. We are all one in the body of Christ. There's no more adjectives before Christian. And we should not use adjectives for a Christian because we are unified in one body, in one spirit to the Father. We are Christian. 17 says, He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those that were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What Paul has just done here is he's fulfilled an Old Testament promise, an Old Testament promise, prophecy from the book of Isaiah. If you go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, 19, what you'll find is Isaiah prophesying as God speaks to Isaiah, Isaiah is saying God's words. And here's what God said in 57, 19. He said, I will bring peace, peace to the far and peace, peace to the near, thus saith the Lord, and I will heal him. 
Paul's saying that's just what Jesus Christ has done. He's gone. He's preached peace, peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles. And peace, peace to those who are near, the Jews. And making one new man now. Because through him, we will both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the second big idea that Paul's talking about. It's who we are because of Christ. Because of Christ, we are now one with each other. Because of Christ, we are no longer enemies, but we're sons and daughters of the Most High. So the final and third point that Paul is going to show us here is who we are after Christ. Well, what's the implication of that, Paul? So now I know who we are. We're one person. But how does that play out? Well, he tells us in verse 19. He says, so then, that's kind of like a therefore. So then, because of everything I've just said, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone in whom this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, we're being built together one by one into this beautiful dwelling place that God is choosing to live in. Brick by brick, believer by believer, this dwelling place is being built up and we are the ones that God has chosen to put his Spirit in. If there are any home builders or architects out there, you know the cornerstone of any building is, one of the, is the most important stone on a whole building. It starts with the cornerstone, and after the cornerstone is laid, everything is laid on top of that. And if you were to remove that cornerstone, the whole dwelling collapses on itself. Church, do y'all see what Paul is telling us here? Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. And everything that we believe and everything that our faith is built on is based upon Christ Jesus and his good news, his gospel. And after Christ Jesus, all the prophets that came before us are laid. And after the prophets, all the apostles are laid. And then after that, brick by brick, all the saints that came before us are being built together. And when today a new person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, another brick is added into that building. And another brick, and another brick, and another brick. And we are being built together as one body into this beautiful dwelling place that God has chosen to live in. Woo. We have a shockingly, shockingly important purpose, church. And that is to be a dwelling place for God. There's no greater reason for unity within the church body than that we are all members of the same body. And with all the saints, we are of God's household. He's our father and we are his children. When we hurt each other, church, we first of all grieve the heart of God and then we hurt each other. But when we love each other well, when we lay down our desires for another brother or sister's needs, when we consider others' interests more important than our own interests, when we give somebody else that parking spot at Reasers when it's raining so we can park far out, we first bring joy to God and then joy to each other. That's why it says in Matthew 25, 40, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. 
Church, there's an eternal ceasefire that's happened. An eternal ceasefire between us and God and us and each other. On the cross, in his flesh, Christ broke down that hostility. May we not bring up walls that Christ has already torn down. It reminds me of a story that um, Pastor John MacArthur tells. And he tells about this World War II soldier. And this young man wrote in his memoirs all of the battles that he went through. And he tells about this one specific battle. He said they were chasing the enemy troops, the German troops, across this open field. And those German troops came to a farmhouse. And they, they overtook the farmhouse. And, and there was a family inside the farmhouse. That family ran out and hid in this barn. And immediately this battle started brewing. And there's, there's bullets flying across this open field and grenades going off everywhere. When all of a sudden... This two-year-old little girl, this little babe, runs out of the barn into the middle of this crossfire. And immediately, you, the soldier writes, you hear his commander say, cease fire, cease fire. And the German troops on the same side said the same thing. And what politicians, generals, presidents, and commanders could not do, a little babe did. Brought peace and a ceasefire in the middle of World War II. Now, the soldier wrote that about two minutes later, this frantic daddy came running out of the house and grabbed his little girl and ran back in the barn. And immediately the war started up again and, and the bullets started flying, the bombs bursting. And what a two-year-old little babe couldn't do, we have another babe that's done. You see, Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of his father in all his glory, came down to earth in the form of a babe. And he lived a life of 33 years, a life that we were supposed to live but couldn't do it. A life of perfect obedience to the Father, sinless. And then at the perfect time, he willingly went to the cross like the warrior that he is. He went up there and got on that cross, and that's where we see him in his most glory, taking the Father's wrath for us. He conquered sin, and he conquered death. On that cross, he took the eternal wrath of God for sin, all of our past sin, our present sin, and future sin in all his glory. And three days later, three days later, God the Father accepted God the Son's sacrifice and rose him from the grave. And now he sits victoriously again at the right hand of the Father. And he says that all those who find themselves in me will follow in me. We will defeat death. We will live eternally. We will be with Jesus. Is that not enough? Is that not enough? There's so much, church, to be grateful for when we can look from inside the comfort of God's grace outward to a lost, unbelieving world. But remember, remember that we all were at one time on the outside, not knowing how to find our way in. In fact, we did not even desire to find our way in. We must not be like the first Israel church. We must not be like ethnic Israel that performed more like a bucket and held in all of God's grace and get swollen with pride and look down on other people. No, you see in Romans 9, Paul tells us that believers in Christ were always the true Israel. That we are the true Israel, that we have God's promises. And our purpose is to show an unbelieving world how merciful and gracious our God is. We are to be a vessel that takes the good news, the light of Jesus Christ, out to a dark 
and despairing world. Praise God in Christ. Praise God in Christ for his divine grace and the inclusion of all believers. The ceremonies of circumcision and holy foods and days which divided the Gentile from the Jew have been removed. And it's the cross of Christ which brought together such divisive people as a Jew and Gentile that can surely be the means of reconciliation for those presently divided, whether that be through ethnicity, nationality, economic status, theological differences, or any other earthly distinction that wrongly separates us. How it must grieve the heart of God and kindle his anger when we set up walls between each other and the church that the death of his son has already torn down. The church should be a living testimony, beloved, to the reconciliation which God has accomplished on the cross. And what a great witness we would be to an outward world. You see, in an outward world, they hang out in cliques with everything in common, whether it's the same sports team or the same job or genders. They hang out together and they don't get along. Think about this for a minute. What would it look like if an outward world looked in at the body of Christ and saw us with not much in common externally, but loving each other well, sacrificing for each other well, not putting up divisions? Can you imagine what they would say? They, they look in and go, look, y'all look nothing alike. You've got old people and, and young people. You've got rich people, poor people, different ethnicities. But y'all get along so well, and you love each other so well, and y'all are like your own community. How do you do it? I want that. How do you do it? And then guess what we get to do? We get to tell them about the love of a father who sent his son Jesus to save us when we were dead in our sins, had no hope, were just like them, and brought us into community. We get to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us all one, that makes our internal much, much more important than our external. That's our purpose. We must show this to an outward world that's at war with each other, the peace that Jesus can bring between believers. God uses this type of uncommon unity to draw people unto himself. Now, church, as, as Kevin and the band begin to come up here on stage and as the pastors come forward, I want to ask you to pray with me today. I want to ask you to pray that God would reveal in your heart any blind spots where you hold a discrimination or a division or a hostility towards another group in the church or even another individual in the church. I pray that you would ask God to show you this. And during this time of invitation, I would ask you that you would repent, confess that sin and repent and go to that person and let them know you're sorry. Go to the group of people, let them know with a holy hug that we're one. Or maybe church, Maybe there's some of you in here today that you don't have peace with an outward world and you don't have peace with the Holy Father. Maybe for some of you in here today, there is still that wall of hostility bent between you and God and you still sit in the hands of an angry God who is gonna have punishment on sin. It will either be eternal wrath in hell or it will either be in his son, Christ Jesus. And if you're there, it's squashed, it's done, it's forever gone. Let today be your day. I plead with you. I beg you. 
Let today be the day that you squash that wall of hostility between you and God by telling Jesus, you are my savior. I am a sinner and I need you. The body's gone. It's not in the grave anymore. All the excuses have been put to nothing. He's risen, he's alive. And he's saying, if you come to me now, I'll forgive you. I want to forgive you. And it's not just about your past sins, it's your present sin and every sin in the future that he knows you're already gonna commit. See, believer, he doesn't love a future version of you better. He loves you right now because he sees you as perfect, as son, as daughter. So as we pray, I pray you'd listen to the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would seek forgiveness pray that we'd repent and I pray that we'd thank him that we in Christ are forgiven our heavenly father how great it is to be part of your family our heavenly father how great it is to know that you don't see us as strangers and aliens anymore but you see us as your sons and daughters I mean God what kind of unfathomable love is it that you would say we are co-heirs with your son Christ Father God, it's hard, it's hard in these flesh-ridden bodies to understand that kind of love, but it's not hard to be grateful for it, God. So we give you all the gratitude and we pray that our worship would be acceptable to you, God. And, and as we pray right now, God, and as we have this song of invitation, Father, please prick hearts, bring hearts that are from death to life, even right now. Let them come forward to a pastor and say, today's the day that I've extinguished that wall of hostility between me and my Father. Father, we love you. We love you, God, but we want to love you more. Help us to do that. It's in the beautiful, beautiful name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.